This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, or two, which sometimes in the past I even selected at random. Any books from my comic book collection are eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for them. Were the issues worth 25 cents? Were they bargains at 25 cents? Or were they still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 158th episode of The Quarter Bin, we're looking at Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tarzan the Warrior. One and two from Malibu Comics, cover dated March 19th and May 25th, 1992. Yes, the inside cover actually contains the precise on-sale date, not just the month. But first, a little feedback. On that series of rule-breaking episodes I did, I heard from Vinnie Gianfredi III. Dear Professor Allen, I'm admittedly a grumpy old curmudgeon, set in his ways and not the biggest fan of progress. What you're saying, Vinny, is that you and I are kindred spirits, okay? Because I totally get that, man. However, Vinny says, even I accept that all things must, must change and adapt to stay relevant and thrive. Much like the Rolling Stones, the automotive industry, or the very comics you cover, evolution was always ever imminent. As a finance professor, I assume you'd have seen this coming, and something tells me the mischievous side of you has been awaiting this predicament since day one. Well, I have to say that rules are made to be broken, and you've again proven yourself creative when it comes to such matters. Vinny, Vinny, thank you, thank you. A different way to bend the rules or find a loophole each episode was quite a splendid idea. So while some may never stop throwing a fit about how Superman, quote, can fly now, and who's this new Barry Allen guy? Others of us welcome the innovation new territories bring, at least, well, sort of, sometimes. Thank you for all the time and effort these podcasts surely must take in making, and I look forward to your next episode. Vincent, thank you. Very kind words. P.S. He continues, I'm sorry, but I have to agree with Michael Bailey as far as the annual debacle in terms of filing one's comics. But on the other hand, it most certainly is a mullet. Oh, shots fired. Man. Well, fortunately, we did hear from Virtual Dragon Con's virtual Michael Bailey, not about Superman's hairstyle, but in fact on the 100-page Walmart issue from episode 156. He confessed that he had more of a reaction to this episode than he expected. Professor, I am not Tom Panarese, and I've never played him on television. Although, right now, I must interject that the second podcast that is currently on my to-listen-to list is Tom and Mike talking about the year 1990. (laughs) So there you go. (laughs) Mike says, And I'm not the world's biggest Titans fan, 
but I was a fan of Young Justice when it was being published, and I watched as Tim Drake, Cassie Sandsmark, and Bart Allen all came up through the ranks. When the John's Titan series began, I was skeptical, and this was when I was all in on John's and his work. The reason was this Titan series happened because of the sea change happening at DC with Dan DiDio coming on board in an executive editor capacity. From my perspective, they canceled a book I loved for a more traditional take on the young heroes of the DCU banding together. I ended up liking it, but this was one of the few titles that Johns had to sell me on in 2003. I get that mic change is hard, like Vinny just said, especially when that change eliminates one of our faves like Young Justice. Mike then comments about the comment I made about Gerard Jones, and he said that brought up an interesting bit of nuance, I feel, at DC or Marvel in terms of reprinting his books. At first, I was all in on never letting him make another dime off his work because what he pled guilty to was so heinous. But what about Pat Broderick and M.D. Wright and the other artists that are now out of a little bit of money because of what Jones did? That seems unfair. Why deny them money that they rightfully earned thanks to the contracts of the time? Because one of the people in the credits is, uh, let's be charitable, a massive scumbag. This reminded me of the controversy surrounding Ed Kramer and Dragon Con, and for the sake of keeping this at least moderately brief, I won't go into that much, but there was a call to boycott Dragon Con because of Kramer's involvement. It seemed to come from an honest place, but still felt wrong-headed. Nuance is hard sometimes. Yes, Mike, yes it is. And that is an issue, because by boycotting one artist, or one person, or one retail store, you're also boycotting all of the suppliers to that store, all of the other people who are employed in that location, like you pointed out. It is a very complicated uh, situation. As a strong believer in free markets, I think that economic boycotts are a wonderful tool. Now, any tool can be used uh, well for its intended purpose, or it can be used in an uneducated uh, manner. But spending money is how we vote in an economic sense. And it's actually a responsibility, spending our money, that we should take seriously. Mike continues and said that he was on board with the 100-page Giants from the jump. I thought it was a great idea that got bungled on a number of levels. It felt like a good way to get eyes on these comics, but Walmart is Walmart and it would eventually go away. The thing they replaced it with is an inferior product. A 100-page Giants offered a variety of stories from different eras designed to attract new readers. The current offerings give random issues of comics that are probably in the middle of a storyline, but if you buy all of them, you can make a poster, I guess? Sigh. Great episode, Professor. I enjoyed your take on these stories, as always. I get a lot out of your shows and appreciate the different perspective. Your pal, Podcasting's Michael Bailey. Thanks. Always appreciate your insights and your feedback, Mike. Vive la différence. Michael T. Geist posted a picture 
of that Titans 100 pager, along with this note. I just received this issue in a short box donated to me from a friend. The box was about a third full of the DC Walmart Giants, along with a bunch of Rebirth and Marvel Now titles. Hashtag comic book circle of life. Very good, very good, Michael. Yes, friends are nice, but comic book giving friends are even just a little bit nicer. And uh, from last time on Battlestar Steampunk Galactica, Jason from Hawaii retweeted the episode with this commentary. Professor Allen scoured the quarter bins and he found gold. Join him as he talks about this great treasure find and shares the aloha. Thank you, Jason. Mahalo. And Ryan, new X guy on Twitter, called it a great review and analysis. And of course, love that quarter bin theme. Good stuff. Dr. Ange posted the cover of issue 28 of the original Marvel version, saying that he hoped the Pirate Queen from the new issue was going to be the same character from that older one, Uriel, Empress of the Scavenge World. But sadly, no. And Sir Luke of the Upstate also wrote in, saying, I missed Battlestar Galactica the first time around, by virtue of not having been born when it debuted. Well, let me just say this, Luke, as a professional educator, I'm going to call that an excused absence. But Luke says he grew to like the show during reruns on the Sci-Fi Channel back in the 90s. And this issue sounds like a fun mashup, although if I'm being honest, it sounds more like it wants to be Old West Galactica 1880 rather than steampunk, which, considering classic BSG was basically a Western in space a lot of the time, that kind of makes sense. My Hoopla has this miniseries as well, so I will give it a read. Thanks for putting me on to this title. You're welcome, Luke. And that is a good point. I wish I'd have been able to say that more clearly. It is much more Old West 1880 than Steampunk 1880. Excellent point. And we heard from the Robin guy, Rob Myers, from Everyone Loves the Drake. I had no idea this was a thing. And I'm hooked now. And Billy D shared what is known these days as too much information. Good show. I loved the BSG series when I was a kid. I think Cassiopeia made me become a man. Um... Thanks for sharing. Social media love for that episode came from Kevin Knox, Derek from the History of Comics on Film, Clinton from Fan Film Friday, Sir Luke Giaconetti, Laurel Mountain Flower One from the Hunters Podcast, Manuel Carmona, Sir Sir Martin of Gray, Neil Stanifer, Mike from Comics in the Golden Age, Paul from the Collected Edition, Bill Bear from the Bat Pod, Joe Frazier. Pat from the Longbox Crusade, October Pod, Old School Ross, Kyle Benning, Chris from Batgirl to Oracle, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, Wonder Woman, Warrior for Peace, Chris Lydon, and our listeners of the year, the kind and lovely Sutherlands from the Rad Adventures Network. 
So let's take a break here, play a promo, and when we get back, we'll be looking at Tarzan the Warrior, issues one and two. In 1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? And we're back. Edgar Rice Burroughs, Tarzan the Warrior 1 and 2, each had cover prices of $2.50. So you would think that that would work out to a very easy-to-compute 90% discount each. Except, and don't panic, this isn't another rule-breaking episode, but you do have to give me a minute to explain how. I picked these books up from the used book and record and comic store in the town where my campus is, Pulp Reality, from their 50-cent bin. I know. I hear your concerns and your complaints. Please, let me explain. All five of these books were in one extra large bag. When I asked the guy at the checkout, he just shrugged and charged me 50 cents for the bag of five comics, which makes each of these a dime book meaning I, in fact, got a 96% markdown from that original price. And so anyone who was a little upset about the three-for-a-dollar episode a while back or two or three-issue reprint books at 50 cents, when you average in these 10-cent issues, I think it all works out. Everyone's happy. You might want to keep this from Stella, though. Both of these covers were by Mark Hempel. The cover for number one shows a silhouette of a wild man against a background of flames. 
He has a knife in one hand and a larger bladed weapon in the other. We are promised that. You've never seen Tarzan like this before. The stories are just called Part 1 and Part 2. Both were written by Mark Wheatley, with pencils by Neil Vokes, and inks by Mark Hempel. The covers that I saw did not contain that creator information. I just bought it because it was a complete Tarzan mini, five issues for 50 cents. To be fair, you couldn't have resisted that either. But when I opened the books up and flipped through them, I was pleasantly surprised to see Wheatley and Hempel being involved in this. Though they aren't necessarily super well-known creators, uh, they were the creators of the first comics series, Mars. I covered Mars number one way back in episode 90, originally airing in November 2016. And I spoke with both of the Marks, Mark Wheatley and Mark Hempel, at Baltimore Comic-Con, and they were super friendly fellows. Issue 1 starts in the Rocks State Park, 20 miles north of Baltimore, May 1988, early in the morning. An ape-like, Bigfoot-like creature has been injured, and Jane and John Cannon attempt to save it. They just want to help, but they don't want to be discovered. Unfortunately, he is dead, Jane. I couldn't stop the bleeding. My poor John. If you live long enough, you lose everything. They are surprised in the act by police, who assume that they're poachers. John tosses the animal's body, which he calls a mangani, into their Range Rover, and Jane lays rubber, getting them all out of there. The high-speed chase takes them into the heart of Baltimore. Our couple bickers about who should be driving, and the best way to avoid getting captured. John tells her to back up to a particular alley. How long would I have stayed married to this man if I hadn't learned to trust him? These thoughts of Jane's, by the way, are presented in a handwritten font, and given that, they're actually pretty easy to read. That doesn't always happen. But this gives the impression of remembrance of these events, of these memories being written down at a later date. But at this point, we're not sure of that, but that tends to be how I would interpret that design element, that that choice of lettering. Anyway, she trusts him, and the car heads down a narrow alley. Police hot on their tail. The smell, John comments, as if it were a piece of Africa. They also see a plane coming right at them. Their Range Rover overturns, and in the smoke and fire, they don't notice that the cops don't seem to be around anymore. But what they do discover nearby is a green-skinned woman speaking in an alien dialect made up of symbols that you get using the shift key and the number bar. She is being chased by big, shape-shifting uglies and they go to her aid. The three manage to fight off a large horde for a while, and when one of the alien shapeshifts into one of those Bigfoot-like Mangani, this completely dumbfounds John. 
Today, I do not want to fight Mangani. What do we know, Jane? Virtually nothing. I can't understand a word she... Listen to me, the alien says, in English, which is credited to that gadget around her neck. The alien lady tells the attacking beasts that they are disobeying the orders of a rift officer. If you do not heed my commands, I will have no choice. I'll file a negative report. I will. So we have learned that she's from a bureaucratic, paperwork-based planet. That's good information to have, I suppose. She despairs of getting through to these subordinates, commenting on their little brains. And anyone who's ever been a supervisor or trainer, classroom teacher, knows that feeling. The three of them run away with John leading them to Charles Street, except, as Jane points out, because of the smoke, I couldn't see it before. But this isn't Baltimore. John then talks about lost cities he's visited before, and how the feeling he got running from the police down that alley was similar to those types of sensations. He mentions a portal, but the alien rift officer says it sounds to her like, well, a rift. I navigate an interstellar craft that uses rift technology to go from one end of the universe to the other. I am known as a rift tech. John seems to have a a bit of natural rift-finding skill, which she does not. She relies on her ship. They find where Charles Street should be, but they head through another rift on the way and find a post-apocalyptic disaster zone version of Baltimore. Less than an hour ago, this was a thriving city. The Rift Tech explains that because of the Rift traveling, this is not the world they left, but perhaps just an echo of it. The problem is that her ship's Rift Warpers are now damaged, and they're distorting time and space. And if they can't figure out how John is manipulating the warps, what his skills are, then we will be stranded in this world forever. Meanwhile, throughout this first issue, a mysterious gentleman in London is harassing elderly gentlemen until on the last page, he finally locates and his henchmen finally nab the correct one. Hard to believe, but I've done my research and I'm certain of it. A gentleman you've just captured, the Savage Ape Man. Allow me to introduce to you Lord Greystoke, Tarzan. The end of issue one. The cover of issue two shows Tarzan in battle against a big city background. Tarzan is pummeling a strange beast that looks to be part wolf and part reptile, maybe? Along with the purples and violets and oranges in the background, it is certainly an arresting, eye-catching cover. Issue 2 starts in the lost city of Baltimore, near sunset, date unknown. An F-14 is flying right at them. Jane, John, and Wumcha, the Riftech, run. I don't think we learned Wumcha's name last issue, but it's possible I just missed it. 
Jane's handwriting notes talk of how the fragrances of this place remind her of Africa, even though it's Baltimore. It's hard to believe this twisted place could never have been my home. A missile strikes, sending up rock and debris, and John's head is injured. He mumbles about stopping the woodpeckers, before adding, a man must have a chance to sleep. John dreams, and we see the classic Tarzan origin story, his parents dying at the hands of gorillas, and a female gorilla replacing her own dead child with the human baby and raising him in a tribe of apes. At the same time, in southwestern England, we see Lord Greystoke being manhandled at the hands of his kidnappers in the back of a moving van. A man in the shadows asks how Greystoke became the Lord of the Jungle, things that Burrow hasn't already put in a book. Back in the lost city of Baltimore, John sleeps and the women chat. We see a magazine cover from four years before, the night the feds dropped the bomb on Baltimore. We learn from Wum Cha that the troopers she was leading were created by her people, a race of genetically inferior metamorphs which serve as our military force. She explains that her people discovered that rifts are random pathways between layers of the space-time structure. We use them to take shortcuts across the universe. But her broken equipment makes it impossible to control or predict where a rift might lead. She tells Jane they shouldn't be wasting time there. I don't consider nursing my husband a waste of time. Mum Chop claims she's just trying to be practical that John's wound will kill him. But the next morning, he feels great. Which is important, Womchop points out, seeing as he has some primitive sense of rift detection. Back in London, the brains behind the kidnapping reveals himself, saying that he is 94 years old, despite looking only 30. Lord Greystoke is not impressed being 115 himself. Though he has solved the secret of youth, this bad guy still needs some things from Greystoke. And they are headed to Africa. Back in the lost city of Baltimore, John shows his skills coming in handy, finding food. As Jane is thinking that John wouldn't mind staying in a land like this, another rift opens, allowing the shape-shifting troopers, Womcha's one-time subordinates or servants, soldiers, to pick up their trail. They head to the harbor and commandeer a boat. With barely any lead, John, Jane, and Womcha attempt to outdistance the troopers. Jane asks if Womcha can close the rift. As a number of beings, some shaped like giant bugs, some as mammals, close in on them on the last page, Womcha answers. No, there is nothing any of us can do. The end of issue two. Since this continues into our next episode, I'm not I'm gonna be kind of brief in my comments on the story so far, and focus more of my attention elsewhere on on other elements for this podcast episode. 
But for starters, we do have a lot of questions that are asked in these first two issues, including, which of these guys is Tarzan? The old guy in London, Lord Greystoke? But if so, then who is this guy married to Jane, who seems to have a connection to animal life, and whose dreams reveal his origin? I'm assuming that these are two separate individuals, though in comic books with dimensional rifts, I could be wrong about that. Anything could be possible. But that is something that I want to see how how it plays out uh, next episode when we cover issues 3, 4, and 5. Another big element here that I'm not sure how I feel about is all the science fiction stuff. Burroughs wrote in that genre, John Carter most famously, but Carson of Venus... Pellucidar probably qualifies as well. And though there was a recent attempt, I think, by the publisher American Mythology to create a unified ERB-verse that pulled all of those properties together into one comics universe. And it wasn't bad. I read some of that. But I'm not convinced yet that it's working here in this series. That this is definitely not a standard Tarzan in the Jungle story. We started it in the city. There's a question about his identity. Those elements take it out of the traditional trappings enough that I suppose maybe there is room for rifts and shapeshifters and an alien ally. If you've never read the comic series Mars, which I mentioned before, or this series, I do have to say that Mark Hempel's art style is pretty unusual for comic books. It's a little psychedelic. Not averse to pastel colors, a lot of soft lines, wavy lines. It is a quite a different looking comic book. So making a story, that's a bit different as well. I can see how those could fit together. But even with those concerns and questions, I'm looking forward to reading the next three issues. When I do a series on the podcast, I only read the issues as I'm covering them on the show. So for me right now, as I record this, I'm as blind to the events of the remaining issues as you are. But I am looking forward to finding out what happens and getting answers to those questions. Now, I did mention Baltimore before the Baltimore Comic-Con, which is where I met the Marks. They are from the Baltimore area, which is why they go to the Baltimore Con every year. And I'm sure that's why this storyline takes place there. Or, at least in a post-apocalyptic version of there. Which actually makes you wonder exactly how they feel about their city. Seeing as they really seem to enjoy, you know, bombing it back to the Stone Age. I do want to take a little time here for some history. First, the history of Tarzan in comics, and then my history with Tarzan, both in comics and elsewhere. In terms of Tarzan history, as early as 1929, Tarzan was being presented in daily newspaper comic strips, with a Sunday strip beginning in 1931. Original Tarzan comics started up in 1948, with 130 issues coming from Dell Comics. Between then and 1962, Gold Key had the license for another 10 years, putting out 75 issues, continuing the numbering from Gold Key. 
During that era, it looked like Charlton also put out four issues, but I'm not exactly sure how that would have happened. DC Comics picked up the license in 1972 for five years, and they also kept up the numbering, producing issues 207 to 258, which I just noticed means that DC put out, are you ready? 52 issues of Tarzan. That company just can't escape that number. When Marvel picked up the license in 1977, they were next. They renumbered the books, foreshadowing what Marvel would spend the entire 2010s doing by putting out 29 regular issues and three annuals. Marvel did some Red Sonja books and also John Carter of Mars books as well during that era. I'm not sure if that was the first time or when it became common practice to purchase not just the Tarzan license, but the entire ERB uh, oeuvre as part of that license. Uh, Malibu uh, picked up the license next for a few years and put out two other miniseries in addition to this one, including one that, uh, that I read called The Beckoning. Then the license went to Dark Horse, and they had it for at least two decades. And their output included Carson of Venus and John Carter and other ERB properties. Then I'm a little confused here, because at some point Dynamite picked up a lot of the ERB properties and have put out John Carter, Deja Thoris, and Red Sony books since about 2014 but not any Tarzan books, or at least books titled Tarzan. So I'm not sure if that license got split off somewhere. Uh, maybe the 2016 movie may have changed the rights for something titled Tarzan. I, I'm, I'm not totally sure. Uh, but I will say I've read a lot of those recent Dynamite ERB books, and a lot of those are uh, quite good. Now for me... My history with Tarzan is actually pretty recent. Now, I say that, you have to remember that I'm in my mid-50s. So pretty recent could mean anything from this millennium. Now, just growing up like everyone of my vintage, I had knowledge of Tarzan. I would bang on my chest and give the cry. I knew of Jane and Boy and Cheetah. But all of that was from cultural osmosis. I don't know that I watched or read anything with the character growing up. I certainly don't remember specifically intentionally choosing to watch something Tarzan-related or read something Tarzan-related. With the exception of a couple of DC comics from the Tarzan family era, uh, when those comics were new in the mid-1970s. But all of that changed when M came along and when the Disney animated feature came along, mostly. So I can't say exactly how many times that film played in my house over the following few years, but definitely scores of times and perhaps hundreds. But for me, at least right then, that still wasn't enough impetus for me to dive into Tarzan. But maybe it did soften me up to Edgar Rice Burroughs. Because in the mid-aughts, 
I know I read a few of the early John Carter books. And just between us, the John Carter movie, which I saw in a theater, in a very sparsely populated theater, it was not great, don't get me wrong, but it's pretty good. It is certainly better than its reputation. And overall, at this point, I'd say I've read the first three or four John Carter books. And then probably in line with the 2016 Legends of Tarzan movie, a number of Tarzan audiobooks showed up at the public library. And again, I read the first three or four of those as well, and again, enjoyed them. And I have another, I think, three on my bookshelf right now, and I certainly plan to work them into the rotation. But those classic Tarzan movies, they remained a blind spot for me until the Greystoked podcast came along. I think I was on that show twice uh, with Noel Thingval and Michael May. And for that, at least for one of those appearances, I watched a good number of the Johnny Weissmuller films. And I have to say that as adventurous as some of them were, as entertaining as some of them were, many of those classic films missed, to me, what's a critical part of the ERB take on Tarzan. And that is that Tarzan became an educated English gentleman. That was a key part of the stories as they developed, this civilizing of the ape man. Despite the Weissmuller portrayal, and maybe it's because of Weissmuller's limitations as an actor, perhaps it was the studio feeling that they knew what audiences wanted from Tarzan. But despite that portrayal, Tarzan is really smart. And he was able to successfully move in both worlds. His struggle was not that he could not fit into our modern world. That's not it. His struggle was that he could fit in our modern world. That was the struggle for him, because as well as he could present himself in the modern world and succeed, his heart was for his jungle family and his jungle life. And there are certainly a lot of schlocky elements in the Burroughs novels. They are cheap pulp adventures. But I think that ERB did actually try to elevate the form at least a little bit. Some of the novels in that series touch on nature and nurture, and really touch on this concept of the man of two worlds. A man who could fit in, could survive, thrive in two totally disparate worlds. So those elements, my favorite element of Tarzan, as a matter of fact, unfortunately have not been major features in many of the adaptations, certainly at least the ones that I've seen uh, in live action. Now, after I got into the books themselves, in the last few years, thanks to cheap bins, mostly the 50-cent boxes at Pulp Reality, I have read lots and lots of Tarzan and related comics uh, from a whole range of those publishers. Basically, at this point, any Tarzan, or I'd say John Carter as well, or related comic that I find cheap, they certainly get strong consideration for purchase. Which is why when I saw this, it immediately caught my eye. And at five comics for 50 cents, of course... I had to pick them up. Now, when it comes to Tarzan comics, 
you can put them into two very broad categories. Ones by Joe Kubert and the ones by everybody else. Because the Joe Kubert ones are generally excellent. And the other ones are almost always a little bit less excellent. You have to set your expectations accordingly when you're reading a Tarzan comic book. And to be honest, most of them don't have alien shapeshifters and rift-jumping technologies in them. So the question is, how much are those drawbacks? The fact that this isn't by Joe Kubert. And the fact that it does include some strange sci-fi elements. How much is that going to affect my verdict on these issues? The Verdict on Tarzan the Warrior 1 and 2. If this were based on the actual average price I paid of 10 cents, these would be no-brainers. Not a quarter, it's a little closer. With those sci-fi elements being the area I'm struggling with the most. But the mystery, the drama, and the strange art style, that is what's pulling me through so far. So these are, in fact, quarter bin deals. That wraps up my coverage of Tarzan the Warrior 1 and 2, bringing episode 158 to a close. Next time, in episode 159, like I've said a few times already, we're going to wrap up this miniseries by looking at Tarzan the Warrior 3, 4, and 5. From Malibu Comics, June, August, and September 1992. If you have any questions or comments about this issue or the episode, Tarzan and his related comic books, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening.